So what I want to share tonight, I'm going to kind of use this, this first reading as a springboard into what I want to talk about. And in this first reading, it's a terribly sad reading. The Israelites are at war with the Philistines. They were at war with the Philistines for about 300 years. And in this particular battle, uh, the Israelites are concerned. They're nervous. There are a lot of Philistines out there. You know, are they going to be able to win? So they say they come up with a plan. Well, let's just go get, the, let's just go get God and bring him to the battlefield. Now, it was their belief, it was their understanding that God sat upon the Ark of the Covenant. They called it the mercy seat, and that was God's chair. So if they went and got the Ark and brought it to the, to the battlefield, they're actually bringing God to come fight with them. And of course, the terrible sadness is the Israelites are dreadfully defeated. 30,000 are killed, and uh, the two sons of the high priest are killed in battle. When the report gets to the high priest himself, he has a heart attack and dies right there. So Israel, Israel has lost 30,000 men. They have lost to the Philistines. They now have no leadership. This is before they had a king. The high priest is dead. His sons are dead. Who, who's going to take over? And it was a dreadful experience for Israel. And they were terribly confused. How can this happen? God was there with us. Was God paying attention? Did God even care? Did he care that 30,000 men were killed? Did he care that he was taken captive by the Philistines? Did he care did God even, does God even exist if we can't even rely on him to help us in battle? Terrible darkness. And I think most of us can relate to that. Because I think most of us have had those moments in our lives when we have expected something from God and found ourselves terribly disappointed with God. And whenever we find ourselves disappointed with God, those three questions keep coming up. Is God paying attention? Does God care? Does God even exist? In the Bible, Job had his share of troubles. We all know the story, right? He lost his wife, his wife survived. He lost all of his children. He lost all of his livestock. He lost all his farm. He lost his home. There's nothing left. He's living on a trash heap. He's covered in, he's lost his health. He's covered in sores. And his wife says to him, curse God and die. But of all the things Job lost. He never lost his faith. He knew God, and he trusted God, even though there was nothing there. There's no reason to trust God at this point. He has nothing. He's lost everything. But this is what Job says. Even if God kills me, 
I will still trust him. Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet at the same time as Jeremiah. They were, they were contemporaries. This was Israel's darkest moment. Israel had um, come under the, um, under the empire of Babylon. And so they had to pay annual tribute to Babylon. And the king decides, I don't want to do this anymore. So he talks to Egypt. Egypt says, we'll support you. Because Egypt did not like Babylon. They were afraid of Babylon. Babylon had become too powerful. So encouraged by the Egyptians to stand up to the king of Babylon, um, the king of Israel, or king of Judah in Jerusalem, says, I'll do this. So he stops sending his annual tribute to Babylon. This really irritated the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And so he sends an army. And so he starts going through Judah, destroying every town in Judah. Swiping them out, destroying them all. And so all the people are flocking to Jerusalem, the walled city on the mountaintop, to give them some safety. And so the Babylonians just encamp around it. They besiege the city. Their troops are all around the city. Nobody can come in or go out. And so you know what happens, of course, starvation, possibly cannibalism. It's a dreadful, and you read the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations, and you just read about death after death after death. But the citizens of Jerusalem were convinced that their city could not be taken because the temple was there. And God lives in the temple. Remember, he's sitting on the seat, right? He's sitting on the Ark of the Covenant. He lives there, so he's not going to let Jerusalem be taken because this is his home. Of course, Jerusalem is destroyed. Most of the population are killed. And those who are not killed are taken captive and sent to live in other, in other places in the Babylonian Empire. The exile, it's called. What happened? Was God paying attention? Didn't he realize that his house was being threatened? Didn't he realize that this was, this was where God lives and he's allowing this to happen? He's allowing, aren't they God's chosen people? And they're being slaughtered or taken captive. Does God care? Does God even exist? There are a couple of things I want to point out. In this intense disappointment we can have with God. And the first is a very sad affair. And we see it many times, in many places, we even see it today. That people truly believe that they are trusting in God, but they're really trusting in a superstition. They're trusting in a superstition that God is living in this house, even though God has told them over and over again, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, where are you going to build a house for me? 
I'm the God of the whole earth. I mean, he keeps telling them this, but they still want to believe that God is in their box. And he's living in this temple, and this is his home. So we can do anything we want, and God will not allow this city to be destroyed. They're not trusting in God. They're trusting in a superstition. In the story that we read, they're believing that God, because the Ark of the Covenant comes, they can't lose. But they're not trusting in God, they're trusting in their superstition. And we see this again and again. My wife had a, had a friend, and um, this is when we lived in Texas, so this goes a ways back. And she was a very devout, charismatic woman. She went to one of these independent charismatic churches that preached, you know, that if you have enough faith, God will do anything for you. And unfortunately, she had gone through a very ugly and painful divorce. But she wants to be a woman of faith. So what she does is she prays very hard in Jesus' name, because Jesus promised, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it, right? So she prays very hard in Jesus' name for her husband to come back to be, you know, to be her husband again, to live with his family again, to restore the family. She prays very hard. And then she gets some other friends in the church, because if two or three on earth gather, you know, gather together touching anything, I will do it. You know? So they, they get two or three people, that, other women in the church, and they're all praying together, and they're all convinced that God is telling them that he is going to come back and be a part of the family again. And, of course, you cannot have doubt, because Jesus said, if you say to this mountain, go jump in the sea and, you, and have no doubt then it'll happen, right? So they can't have doubt. So they are living in this, um, in this framework of mind that they are convinced that God is going to make this happen. He's promised it, and this is what's going to happen. On the day her ex-husband married the other woman, she lost everything. She lost her hope. She lost her faith. And it happened to be a day that Cheryl was watching her children. Or she was taking care of her children that day. And when this woman comes to the front door to get her kids for the evening, Cheryl knew by the Holy Spirit that she was on, this woman was on her way to commit suicide. She knew it. And you know, Cheryl, God bless her, She's a tough one. She, does, you know, she takes charge when she feels like she needs to take charge. So she, brings, she grabs this woman, she brings her into the house, she makes arrangements for someone to take care of her kids, and she says, you are not leaving this house. And so for several days, this woman stayed with us, Cheryl ministering to her, praying with her, guiding her. Eventually, she was actually hospitalized, she went to the hospital from our house, and she was in the hospital for a few days and then she received some counseling before she was able to restart her life. But her disappointment with God was so intense that all, she's, all that was left for her to do was to kill herself. She had lost all hope and lost all faith. 
But when Habakkuk, we started off talking about Habakkuk, but when Habakkuk is faced with this issue of Jerusalem being, being attacked by the Babylonians and he's awaiting the destruction of Jerusalem, Habakkuk writes this, and it's too long for me to memorize at my age, so I'm going to try to, so I have to read it. And uh, I've got to find it again. Even though the fig trees have no fruit and no grapes grow on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no grain, even though the sheep all die and the cattle stalls are empty, I will still be joyful and glad because the Lord God is my Savior. This is trusting God. Not trusting for some particular outcome. Not believing that God is going to do this for us or desiring God to do that for us. This poor woman who's going to commit suicide was so convinced that she was able to manipulate God. She wasn't trusting God. She was trusting in her own choices and her own ability to manipulate God to do what she wanted, to do what she expected. And when it did not come to pass, she gives up or is ready to give up. But Habakkuk says, if everything else is gone, if everything fails, I not... I'll just trust in the Lord. I will rejoice. I will be joyful and glad because God is still my Savior. How can he do that? How can he say that? And the reason he can say that is this. There is a principle throughout Scripture, and the principle goes something like this. God makes a promise, and oftentimes that promise is really slow in coming about. But then when it happens, there's great joy. God has fulfilled his promise, but then the promise dies, and there's desperation. But wait, and the promise will be renewed in resurrection and it will be more glorious than before. And this is, this principle goes throughout scripture. Think of Abraham. He's promised to be a great nation. At the age of 100, he's yet to have, a, any, hate to have an heir. He does not yet have a son, have an heir. And so he's ready to give up. But when Isaac is born, there is wonderful rejoicing. Finally, an heir. Abraham can, perhaps he really can truly be the father of a great nation. But then Abraham is challenged to sacrifice his son. How can that be? How can Abraham remain faithful to God challenged to sacrifice his son. 
But Abraham is faithful. And of course, God is faithful. And God himself provides the sacrifice. And Isaac goes on to become the son of the promise, who would be the, the lineage of the Messiah, the true promise that is the, the, of, of the great nation to come. Think of the Israelites. They're promised the land of Canaan. It's the promised land, right? And they're living in Canaan, but there's a drought, so they go to Egypt. And things go really well for them there because they discover the, 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 the son Joseph that they thought they sold into slavery. He became Pharaoh's right-hand man, and they build a beautiful compound uh, in uh, the capital of Amaris. And Amaris, the capital of Egypt at the time, and it's a beautiful compound. They've actually excavated it, and there's a pyramid there, which is Joseph's grave, you know, uh, gravesite. And there are 12 houses where all the sons of, of, uh, of Israel lived, and they had a wonderful time until there was a change of dynasty in Egypt, and then they became slaves. The promise is dead. But yet God renews the promise when he sends the prophet Moses, and they are miraculously set free from slavery, they go on, they're on their way to Canaan, and they chicken out, right? They won't go into the promised land. They won't take the promised land. So they have to, you know, add a step to the process. So they spend 40 years wandering in the desert, but yet the promise is eventually resurrected, and, they're, and they are in the promised land. But they had to go through those steps. King David, he's anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. And things are going well at first. He, was, he's the, he becomes King Saul's son-in-law. Everything's going well for him. And then Saul becomes jealous of him and tries to kill him. David spends th 13 years on the run. The promise is dead. But God resurrects the promise. He comes back to be the king of Israel, to take the throne, and he actually fulfills the resurrection of the passage we just read because he is the one who is able to finally subdue the Philistines and conquer them so that Israel can live at last in peace. After 300 years of war with the Philistines, it is David who is resurrected to do this. And of course, we all know the, the story of the Messiah. For hundreds of years, the Messiah was promised. They, the, Israel awaited the Messiah. Many rose up claiming to be the Messiah, and they were all killed, and the promise died. When Jesus comes, he's the Messiah, and then he's killed. And his, his followers are scattered, and everybody says, the promise is dead. But his, Christ's resurrection changes everything. It's a pattern we see again and again in Scripture, and I could talk for hours giving you more and more examples throughout the Scriptures of that same pattern. The promise, the death of the promise, the resurrection. God always brings a resurrection. And so Habakkuk, looking at Israel's darkest moment, says, when all else is lost, I will rejoice and be glad because God is still my Savior. Habakkuk knows there's a resurrection coming. In our darkest moments, there is a resurrection coming. And we can look at, at the darkness around us 
and rejoice and be glad because God is still our Savior. And we don't always see that resurrection in this life. Sometimes it waits for the next, the life to come. In fact, we think of 300 years Israel's slave in, in Egypt. Many people lived and died wanting, to free, wanting freedom and restoration of the, of the promised land. And they didn't see it, but it came. And they saw it in the next life. They saw it when they were with God. Todd Burpo, does that name mean anything to you? Todd Burpo, he was a Methodist preacher. He, um, he was a Methodist preacher, and uh, he and his wife, Sonia, were all excited when she got pregnant, and they were going to have their first child. They're finally starting a family, and there was, there was so much excitement, but then something went wrong, and there was a miscarriage, and she lost the baby. And some of you have been through that devastation. Some of you know that sadness. It seems like the world is crashing down and that nothing else matters, that life has just ended around you. But most continue on, and in fact they did, and they managed to come on. They didn't lose their faith. They continued on, and they had two other children, a daughter and then a young son named Colton. And all was well, everybody was happy, but then Colton got sick. He's five years old. He got sick. He got very sick. And they live out, I think it's in Nebraska somewhere. I think they live out in Nebraska. And the local doctor couldn't figure out what was, what was going on. And they talked to, I'm not putting down Nebraska. <laughs> but anyway, they're, they do finally get to a doctor who realizes what it is. And he has an acute appendicitis. And of, and of course, he's rushed to the hospital. They do emergency surgery. It's really touch and go there for a while. And, um, but he does recover. He recovers from the surgery. But something very special happened, something unique happened. Like so many people who go through that near-death experience, he, he spends some time in heaven. Now, in our, from our time scheme, it'd be just a few seconds probably, but in, in the story, it just seems to go on and on and on. He tells the story. It's in a book called Heaven is for Real. It's a wonderful story. And um, he meets Jesus. He meets the Blessed Mother. He um, meets his grandfather. He meets a, a Marine who had died in, in combat and his, uh, was the son of a woman who attended their church. And, and so he, he had that connection. And he meets a young girl. And when he asks for her name, she says, I don't have a name. My parents never named me but I'm your sister. He didn't know anything about his mother having a miscarriage years before he was born. Neither did his, neither did his other living sister. But there's always a resurrection. God cares for every moment of darkness in our life. Every tragedy, every loss, every child who fails to breathe air, God cares and God takes care of them. And it's so easy when we're on this side of things and we experience these, these disappointments, these tragedies, these losses, and we wonder, 
Isn't God paying attention? Doesn't God care? Does God even exist? Yes. He will always bring resurrection. That's why St. Paul can say, whatever, we ha whatever happens, God works all things for the good of those who love him. So when we're faced with tragedy, when we're faced with loss, when we're faced with darkness, always remember God is going to bring resurrection. And therefore, in the midst of sorrow and sadness, we can be joyful and glad, for God is still our Savior.